listening to episode 169 of Sci-Fi TV Rewatch. My name's Dave, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Wayne, as we begin our look at season two of TNT's The Librarians. And, uh, hey, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, as we, I've made no bones about it. Like, I really like The Librarians, one of my favorite shows. So, so a lot of fun talking about it. Yeah, and we have been trying to preach the gospel at work, and so far, no taker. Well, we almost I think, got I think we got someone who, uh, I, think, I think we can break her down. Yeah, except that I made the mistake of telling her about The Hundred. And then she went, no, you didn't hear that today. Huh. She went and watched the first four episodes of The 100. Oh, yeah. So, but anyway, we're not here to discuss The 100. We're here to discuss The Librarian Season 2, Episode 1, The Librarians in the Drowned Book. But before we get to that, obviously, we want to remind you, we'd love to hear from you via email at sci-fi tv rewatch at gmail.com or at the website where you can leave a voicemail. Using the leave voicemail tab, you can record your own audio clip and send the MP3 as an attachment or just send us a tweet at Sci-Fi TV Rewatch, and we'd encourage you to consider joining the Facebook group and join the discussions there. Now, I didn't mention this to you because I've been thinking about it for a while, and you know, like anything, I just forgot to tell you. <laughs> so as a means of perhaps generating some listener feedback, some commentary, some, hey, you guys should be watching this, you morons, whatever. <laughs> All right, so Everybody knows I, I did my book review on the forthcoming Librarian's companion novel, The Librarians and the Lost Lamp. So I'm thinking like, well, why don't I give that away to some, you know, one of the listeners? But you got to do something. So I'm thinking, you know, maybe we'll do something like, hey, if you send us some feedback, it doesn't have to be a short novel or anything, but, you know, something <clears throat> or an audio clip, whatever. Then we'll put your name in a hat, we'll draw one out, and I'll mail you off the book. Right. Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. So it's an uncorrected advanced reading copy, not for sale, but we're not selling it. We're giving exactly. it away. And uh, so, you know, maybe next time we'll have some details on that. Very nice. It's a good idea. So we don't have any news tonight. We don't have any feedback tonight. <laughs> we will after I give the book Hopefully. away. Well, not after. <laughs> Uh, up until you give the book away and then it'll, it'll go yeah. back to the dry well good point there we go <laughs> nah no it won't see then the, everybody will be psyched to do it so okay all right well, well let's look at season two episode one librarians in the drowned book written by paul guyatt john rogers who we've seen them many times before directed by mark roskin same thing and this one aired november 1st 2015 you know one of my initial thoughts is just i love this concept of fictionals yes and and i would be fine if they ever revisit it oh i'm sure they'll they'll go back to it eventually you know, i mean i don't know if they'll go right back to it since you know like prosper was the big baddie pretty much all last season yeah i could see him coming back to it but I, I, yeah, wouldn't, and, I wouldn't imagine them doing it in, in season three, though. Well, you never know. True. But, but like you said, since, since Prospero was such a huge part of season two, it's and he was a fictional or is a fictional, it, it seems unlikely they'll go back to that well. But as you said, you never know. Now, the other thing, the complexity of Eve and Flynn's relationship is just refreshingly complex, yeah. <laughs> which... I you always know. trying to figure out exactly, well, I mean, I'm not, but I know you are, but I mean, just as the watchers were like, what's the deal? You know, like it's at some point she seems totally into him and then not, and then he seems into her and then not, and it's just like kind of this back and forth. So it's good. 
Yeah, and you know, they're just so different from every couple we've seen. And like you said, I, number one, I don't know how to ship them other than that. Yeah, uh, I wouldn't necessarily even call them a couple, you know. Well, I know, but here they, you know, I mean, we see that whole, that scene, you know, where they clearly have been off traveling together. And, and of course, that could certainly be in a professional capacity. We don't know, but there well, does seem to based be. based on every one of the librarian's movies, Flynn like always ends up in bed with like the the female lead or the you know the main female character of the movie. Okay, and, and there is some shipping in the book, The Lost Lamp, uh, and I think I said last time uh, I, I can rule out Caniacs, so you don't have to worry. It's 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 not Jacob Stone, <laughs> but I'll just leave it at that. Oh, you know, before we get 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 along too far. I, I don't know if you saw it or not. I think I retweeted it, but it was a picture of John Kim on the softball field. And I'd seen that rather lengthy interview that, that he did with uh, this guy. And they were talking about computer gaming. And, and I just kind of had him figured for a nerd. N- nothing wrong with a nerd, but. As, so does as a, playing softball make him not a nerd well i mean what what i'm getting at is and and i know i'm I'm stereotyping so sorry but and i know you can relate to this and, and you know even though you you know i mean i'm sure you played baseball as a kid but i know you're a lacrosse player so, right. so the spring was devoted to lacrosse for you but i'm sure it's the same way it's like i've always told my wife coaching i can just look at a kid and the way he or she holds his glove yeah, or or carries her bag or sure. whatever. It's just you just can tell mm-hmm. that kid's either a player or not. And the picture of John Kim, I'm just telling you, he he, he looks like a player. Yeah, he, so, he, I mean, he looks like an athletic guy, you know. So well, it's hard to tell. I guess you always, he, he always seems so small in the show. Oh well, just because small guy means doesn't mean he can't be athletic. Well, no, no, no. I understand that. <laughs> I, be, I better stop now before I dig myself. Yeah, into no deep doubt. Here. Man. So, all right. Well, let's let's get into that's the before episode. I even get started on softball. So you know, I, I know, just, I know, I know, and and yeah, really. I mean, hey, could be a middle infielder. Right, then let me stop now. All right, all right. I love the opening scene. I mean, it's your classic horror suspense, thunder, lightning, dark room, mysterious figure in a library. I mean, it, it, it's straight out of the '60s with Vincent Price, and and I don't know if you remember any of those old Vincent Price movies. They were probably running, uh, you know, Saturday morning when you were a kid. Sure, yeah, yeah, I remember. I mean, yeah, not, not like I just the parts I could catch before my mom caught me. Yeah, yeah, yeah they were pretty scary, and mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of Edgar Allan Poe stories. So here we he takes a book, and we still don't get a visual on the person yet. Takes a book off the shelf. Using magic calls for a character whose help he needs. Of course, we later learn that it's Prospero calling forth Moriarty, but at this point, we don't really know it. All we know is he pulled a Sherlock Holmes book from the shelf. So right away, just very cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, the librarians are all into the mysterious opening, right? They, they do that all the time. And so just another good one. Well, yeah, yeah. But this one, you know... I'm not sure I'm ready to say this is my favorite episode of the series yet, but it's darn close. You know, I'd have to go back and really look at all of season one, but there's just so much to like in this one. True. You know, not not the least of which is Professor Knox. I mean, he's just awesome. Yeah. AKA Moriarty. Right, right. All right. So 
you know, we see Eve and Flynn, they're on a mission to recover an idol, and it's clear she's getting a bit tired of the adventurer's life. And, and you know, again, we don't know whether they've been a couple. You you seem to imply that you, you're pretty certain that they have been. Yeah. Based on the movies. Right. Well, and based on the, the way they, they act. Well, right. But then, you know, kind of like what you were saying at the beginning, it's like, well, what the heck's going on here? I mean, he tries to kiss her a couple of times, but she evades him. Right. Much like I wish the Ravens running backs would do, but no. They just do they even have run, running backs? They run into contact. <laughs> they need to play Terrence Westmore, dude. That's uh, all there no, is to it. No, I'm telling you. But, but, you know, it's not because she doesn't want him to kiss her, or at least it doesn't seem that. It's she doesn't want to change the subject. So, right. I, like you she know, won't be distracted with that nonsense. Exactly. Like that. So then is he using that to distract her from you know, bringing up something that he doesn't want to hear, or is he just not that clever? <laughs> I, I mean, I think he's just kind of, he's like really into her and, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, it's, it's much funnier if they're like almost kissing each other all the time rather than the actual kissing stuff, you know, well, yeah, Which we I, got a lot of that last, you know, um, last season. Well, sure. And that's one of the things that's so great about their relationship and really great about Flynn Carson. And we see see this in, in the movies as well, is that as clever as he is, as brilliant as he is academically and, and, and again, as an archaeologist, sometimes his love slash social skills perhaps leave a bit to be desired. But I guess on the other hand, you could argue he does score in the end. Yeah, true. So, yeah. All right, so they're back at the library. The book begins to do its thing, calling them to an exhibit in New York. Coincidence or sinister alignment, she tells them. <laughs> one of my favorite lines in the, in the whole episode. But she's worried about the young librarians, and he isn't. And, you know, even that's something that, that I find interesting because is that he doesn't want them around because they'll get in the way of his and uh, Eve's relationship, or is he really just thinking about the fact that they need to spread their own wings, develop their own styles? Well, which you is- know, he says a couple of times that it's just like, he kind of like, likes working on his own, you know, I think. And he doesn't mind having, you know, a guardian around to help out, because especially this first guardian again was uh, Sonia Walger and he slept with her too. So, you know, it's nice to have a guardian around, but beyond that, it's like three's a crowd, I think. And, and Flynn just has been on kind of basically either on his own or in these fly-by-night relationships for so long that to be kind of like, you know, nailed down to any one relationship or any one place is, he's just not into that, you know. Right. And, and that's what's so, again, so interesting about this episode because the young librarians think that's what they want and that's what they get for a while and then they realize once they're brought back together no that's not what we want at all and 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 again eve as they're it's almost like i don't want to call her their guardian anymore even though she is because she is again it's almost like a mother figure even though she's you know only about 10 years older than they are but but still so i guess really maybe it is fair to call her the guardian yeah, but she, you know, but it's it's she's obviously more than that, right? Oh yeah, it's definitely more than a professional relationship. 
Uh, I, I think you're accurate to say she's like kind of got a motherly figure. It's like, you know, like a mother of an adolescent, you know, who, uh, you know, you, there's a certain amount of get out there and experience life and figure it out for yourself, kid. As much as she wants to be with Flynn, it's almost as if she'd rather be with them. Yeah. And that's fascinating that, yeah. that she thinks that. Because well, we totally see that at the end of the second episode, right? Well, well right. But she digs Flynn. So yeah, again, that's why their, their relationship is just so much fun to watch. Well, speaking of fun to watch, I mean, we've got a classic Ezekiel Jones scene. He's in that secured building, which is so secure, no one could get into it. And then he asks, well, how about, can I, can I get out? <laughs> and then, of course, he's handcuffed by the guards. Next thing you know, he's taken the clippings book digital, and he's got the guards handcuffed to the statue, yeah. and, he, and he's on his way out. Now that I'm into the uh, smartphone generation, hey, you know, it's Jones, you're all right. Yeah, well, the the pizza too, like that. You you gotta love that running gag with the pizza. You know? Yes, yes, exactly. Now, uh, back at the library, Stone, and, and and it's nice to be able to say back at the library. We were saying back at the annex for so long, right? Back at the library, uh, Stone is the first one dropping off his object, followed by Cassie. Then, of course, Jones, who goes out first. How sweet was it when Cassie kisses Jenkins on the cheek? Yes. Well, it's so funny because each of them has <clears throat> what? Okay, get ready for this, Leverage fans. Each one has a very distinctive entrance and exit here. You know, and just by it, this is like the great thing about how the writing of this show is how just by like coming in the door and then going back out the door, we see so much of the the characters revealed. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And and then her her line. Probably should have done that when I came in, but it, it, I guess it was almost the excitement of being back, the excitement of, I, I'm not sure though, does she know everybody else is back at that point? I'm not sure they know right away that the right. others are well, yeah, because, back. Well, they're all busy, right? They're, they're, so there's kind of like on the fly, you know, so Ezekiel steals the wallet, uh, Cassie hugs Jenkins, uh, Jacob, he shakes hands with Flynn's and does like a forearm bump with Eve that they do in the, the second episode as well. So it's just, they, they all have kind of like their own thing, but yeah, I, I like, it was very much like I was watching a stage play, you know, like the snappy quick dialogue, people entering and exiting and everything. It was very much like, a, you know, you're seeing a play in a, in a theater. Um, this scene to me, I, I really liked it a lot. It's excellent. Well, and then the other thing is, for the first time, you know, we get the clippings book, of course, but it sends them each to the same place, but each with a different task. Right. So Eve and Flynn go to the museum in New York. <laughs> I love her line. I'm, I'm stealing all your best lines here. You That's know, a, just once you, it would be fun. Be, there's, there, there's so many. There's, there's yeah, one or two. You know, just once it would be fun to come to a major city when we're not trying to defeat existential magic evil. <laughs> and of course, as it turns out, this is an exhibit that he has some experience with because, you know, he, he worked here, uh, I think they said, what, 10 years ago, something like that. But the other thing we find out is that. Well, yeah, some- yeah, yeah, because this was the, the place in, in the first movie. Right. Yeah. Right. So something happened in Peru that split up the team. And I love that we have no idea. And, and, you know, we don't find out in the second episode either. 
as I recall, what it is. I mean, Cassandra curtly greets Stone and Jones not at all. Right. And and then, you know, even though the clippings book sent them all to New York, Eve's bothered by the fact that as Jones I'm sorry, as Stone says, I've got my own style and it's just you know, it's just there's so much tension here. Yeah, I don't think it's any like really necessarily one thing that happened. It seems like they just kind of you know, like if you're working closely with someone or even I guess a better metaphor would be like your siblings, if you had to stay in the same room for any length of time, you just start to kind of, you know, grade on each other a little bit and get on each other's nerves. And it seemed like they just kind of got sick of each other. But, but you know, that's like a bad thing though, you know, because they really, they work as they learn through these two episodes, they learn that they work best as a team. Uh, so even though they are staying alive and succeeding individually, they're really much more successful when they join together. Well, well, right. And Eve, it's as if she sees her family split apart. And I mean, if I had to venture a guess, I'd probably say that Stone probably tried to tell the other two what to do. Jones, of course, is not having any of it and, and probably just walks out. And Cassie's left in the middle, you know, you know, feeling as if it's somehow her fault when, of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Right. Yeah. And, Right, and and then of course you've got Flynn who understands. Well, they're librarians. Of course, they've got their own style, and and I just like really feel for Eve at this point because thinking like, girl, you got your hands full with these four. Yeah, exactly. Well, and again, if if we go with like Eve as this mother figure, I mean, it you know kind of tears her up to see that the kids are not getting along. No, no. So it, but but things start to move in the right direction when they get to New York stones after a chess set from milan cassie is directed to the weather station jones is after the earrings that belong to an heiress whose family owned the shipping company that's connected to the shipwreck that's really the focal point of this exhibit so uh, you know even though it was part of the job <laughs> it was really fun seeing jones try to talk to the hot girl sure with the earrings he seemed to be doing uh, much better than i thought he would actually well, I, I do it, and and I love her, and I, and I thought, you know, I, it, she must have been in a bunch of stuff. She, that, but that girl, I think she's a model and and has a few acting gigs, but right. but but she was really good here. She was perfect for the role. <laughs> but then later, he he gets some tips from Stone, starts making headway with the girl, and then he suggests going for a walk. And nope, yeah. you're boring. <laughs> Yeah. So then, what is? Well, that's what, what is you know, he like. I said. I mean, he he was he was doing all right there up to a point. Oh, right. And then what gets him over the hump is, of course, then he's himself and he tells the truth. Well, you know, my friends and I are going to rob the museum. You want to come along? Well, that that whole you know that's where he's got the swagger, right? That's it's like that confidence. Yeah. Well, well. Hey, speaking of swagger and confidence, the museum's curator, who of course turns out to be Moriarty. But a great scene when he and Flynn each show off as they indicate that they know who each other is based on a series of physical clues related to their jobs as historians and archaeologists. And, and I mean, obviously, there's tons of Sherlock Holmes references dropped sure. by both of them. Um, which is awesome because, you know, like Moriarty is you know, one of the great villains of all time. Um, but, you know, ironically, you know, Moriarty is kind of in the background of the Sherlock Holmes stories, at least. 
until I think really I don't know if we see him before the the uh, the story in which they um, they clash and and are killed. But here he's you know right out right from the beginning is not trying you know not really well he's trying to hide his identity a little bit, but really um, he's uh, brought to light very early on. Right, and, and you know all of this. Uh stuff that's related to deductive reasoning which calls back to the episode's opening scene as somebody takes that conan doyle book from the shelf so we've got cassandra's in the weather station studying what's going on with this unusual weather and then first stone then jones come in to ask for help and 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 i love it because she knows what they're both doing especially stone right yep yeah they don't need her help really (laughs) so why they're there don't know well i think she just thinks it's a ploy to get them to work together i think she even tells uh stone you, you know you could have looked that up on the internet but <laughs> but it, you yeah. know it, it, it it's obvious without eve's leadership the three of them just flounder because of their differing styles and strengths and and you know here here's like they they want to come together and it's almost like they don't know how because they don't have those social skills well I think they, again, it's just like with uh, you know with Flynn is that after an extended period of being on your own, you get used to doing things on your own. You know, like if you live on your own, like you have your own apartment, it would be very difficult to go to a situation where you had a roommate, right? Oh, sure. But if you start off with a roommate, then it's you know it's much easier to go have another roommate because you're used to live with other people. Um, but you know, people who become accustomed to living by themselves, you know, often cannot really make that adjustment to you know, living with others because they they get their own things. Like I have the soap where I want it. I have you know all the spices where I want it, and everything. Everything's just as I like it and where I'm used to. And if someone else comes along and it throws it all upside down, I'm not sure I like that. Well, well, that's true, and and we don't really know. I don't think how much time has elapsed since you know the end of season one. But, I mean, we get the impression that, that Stone has pretty much been on his own. I mean, you know, he's been working, you know, the oil rigs and all that stuff. But we get the idea that he's been, you know, pretty solitary. We certainly get that impression with Cassandra. And, you know, I'm starting to come around to your way of thinking about Jones because I know I've always contended he, he had to have worked as with a team at some point. But, you know, maybe not. Maybe he is so. No, I'm not saying he didn't. You know, I'm just well, saying, you know. I don't know. He like he seems like to be a pretty independent type of guy. Well, right, and 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 self absorbed, <laughs> maybe right. even a little. Exactly, a little bit. So at this point, I mean, that they saw the beauty of working together, get out on their own. I'm just wondering how long they were out there. Maybe it was long enough that that you know they were back in their old ways. Mm-hmm. But uh, now, <laughs> again, the, the dynamic with with Knox, Eve, and Flynn was just, again, just priceless. Did you notice Flynn physically trying to get in between Knox and Eve? Yeah. Is, the, is, it, is, it, is it Knox or Worth? I thought it was Knox. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Oh, you could be right. I don't know why I keep writing. Yeah, you're probably right. I don't know. I have Worth down. Like, I'll bet you're right. You kept saying Knox. I was like, who's Knox? Yeah, yeah, good point. I'll bet it is. But you know, it's almost like a dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, just going up and try to you know nudge well, you away. Yeah, he's j- j- jealous, right? Yeah. So that's you know, 
Green-eyed monster rearing its ugly head. Yeah, yeah. And then when he asks her, Eve tells him that she doesn't know why she's not with the team anymore. And, uh, you know, I think that's, I guess probably the hardest thing for her to deal with is that she doesn't know what happened. I mean, it would be one thing if there was this big blowout and then you understand why everybody's gone their separate ways. But right. I think just like the little argument they start to have in, was it the weather room that they started having the argument? I can't remember where it was, but you know, it's just kind of indicative that they were just, you know, like they just, I think it was just like little things. It doesn't seem like it was any one big thing. It was just like a bunch of little things that add up. They're just getting annoyed with each other. And so they decided they better go off. Yeah, I guess. But then what they learned, you know, but I think the important thing that they learned is that, you know, like I said before, is that, um, or what this incident teaches them is that, you know, we are better together than we are apart. That even though we, there's these idiosyncrasies and, and you know, things don't necessarily go exactly the way I would want them to go. We're still very effective as a team, much better as a team than we are apart. Yeah. So. All right. Well, again, speaking of a team, the, the unlikely pairing of Flynn and Worth, uh, studying that box that can only be opened by magic. And at, at first I'm thinking like, well, I was surprised that, that you know, really you should call him Moriarty since we know sure. that, that's who he is that he wasn't able to figure this out, but I guess he really doesn't have the, that experience. I mean, he's, you know, he's in a detective's world. He, he's, you know, he's not been in the world of magic. I mean, he's been called out by magic, but, but this is the point though, where Flynn starts putting two and two together, deduces that he's actually the fictional character released from the book into the real world. And that I love it. It, it first incorrectly thinks he's Sherlock Holmes, which was, you know, certainly a reasonable guess. Exactly, a very good guess. But that we quickly learn he's Professor James Moriarty, and then he, he starts with the uh, nicknames, don't duchess me, pal, she tells him. <laughs> so, all right, now let's get back to, uh, you know, some of the relationships because there was there was really a lot of quick editing in, in, in this episode, and, and really, I think, in most of the librarians' episodes. And, you know, if there was a suggestion or a, a hope that I would have is that you know, in some of these that, that they give scenes more time to develop. And, and, and I know that's not the trend these days, but, but I have seen some shows of late that they do that. And you know, it's just so, so effective, mm -hmm. but okay. That said, we're back to Jones, the hot girl, <laughs> and then Stone talking to him, dude, she's out of your league, bro. Yeah. Your little league. <laughs> T-ball. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, that was bad. They're like, not, yeah, not in the same like stadium, not in the same sport. Right. And then it but turns then again, out. Like I said, I'm impressed with how far he gets. Well, but who gets the, who gets the furthest? Well, Cassie does. Cassie does. <laughs> she gets, gets the digits. Gets her to, gets the digits, gets the earrings. <laughs> Kisses Cassie on the cheek, gives her a number, and I love Stone. Wow. <laughs> and I, truth be told, I did too. Yep. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. So Flynn determines there's got to be a second fictional character at the museum, and that the Clippings book was actually trying to keep these objects out of the hands of Prospero, character from Shakespeare's Tempest, who was a magician, and, and I... 
regretfully say I've never read The Tempest. Yeah, I never, never read The Tempest either. So I think I've picked up enough of it in the librarians just to be dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> but I've learned uh, enough through TV that I figure I can get by pretty well. There you go. Um, all right. So too late. Prospero has all the objects, opens the box, apparently increasing his power as he controls the storm. And again, here, we, here we've got another uh, baddie who's all about increasing his power. To what end? We don't know. I mean, I, I guess to a certain extent what comes out of the episode is that he's resentful of William Shakespeare right. for making the, his decisions for him. Oh, well. What a concept. The writer... <laughs> There, so there's this, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, there's this one, you know, if you ever saw Blackadder with Rowan Atkinson? No, I have. Yeah. I think I've heard the name, but so, I have not seen yeah, it. Yeah, so you know Rowan Atkinson, like Mr. Bean and everything oh, like yeah, that? Oh, yeah, sure. So he made this series of Blackadder this, this, following this one family uh, through time. And then one of the last ones, uh, the Blackadder, he has a time machine, and so he has to prove to people that it's a time machine. So he has to go back in time and collect all these things. And one of the things is that they had to collect like something from Shakespeare. And so he goes back and meets Shakespeare as Colin Firth is actually playing Shakespeare. And he just decks him. <laughs> he punches him out. And he said, that's your every, you know, sixth grade who's had to read your plays, buddy. <laughs> uh, I not, love that's it. not exactly what he said. It's something like that. But it was just, uh, it was hilarious. You know? I love Colin Firth. My wife especially loves Colin Firth. Yeah. The, other interesting thing that we learn, though, is that despite you know Prospero drowning his book, breaking his staff, which of course he blames on Shakespeare, his actions have to stay within the context of the play, and that without magic, he'd been a mere mortal until magic returned to the world. So, so now you know all of this stuff is coming full circle, and he realizes that okay, now magic's in play again. I can go back and get what he deems is rightfully his, which is, of course, you know, being a magician. Right. So I, I, I'm not sure how he enlists Moriarty. Is it because of his deductive skills? Is working with Sherlock Holmes? Uh, I don't know. Just, I guess, the, you know, maybe the cleverest bad guy in literature, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's perfect. I mean, he has the look, he has the demeanor. He, and, and again, I love the fact that Moriarty over the, the course of this uh, episode and, and, and even the next few episodes, it's that he really does. Is he a good guy? Is he a bad guy? Is he, he's not really a good guy, but he's not all that bad. Right. Well, we understand that he is compelled to do what he has to do, right? Right. That he's kind of under the sway of Prospero and that he doesn't really have a choice. So right. Right. But we then don't again, condemn him 100%. No, right. But then again, well, you know, what we know of his literary uh, background. Sure. Well, just the fact that he's Moriarty itself you know, right. means he's, he's a baddie. Right, right. So, you know, that, that line that Prospero, my author's dead, magic's back, I write my own ending. Now, he summons Ariel, who's bound to serve the magician Prospero, and I, I kind of got the impression. Maybe you can tell me if I, I, you know, misheard it or whatever. But is Ariel part of the Tempest? Uh, I that's kind of how I. So yeah, I'm not sure. I think okay. so though. Yeah. Okay. Well, regardless, the three of them disappear into a tear in the real world, and we've said a number of times: time travel, interdimensional travel. We're all in. Oh yeah. <laughs> so. Yep. So that was pretty cool. 
then, you know, they've got to start trying to figure out, you know, how they're going to solve this, this terrible puzzle. And we haven't really seen Jenkins too much in it at this point, but they, but they realize they've got to break up this category five storm that's just been wreaking havoc. And until they do that, I mean, there's really going to be no stopping Moriarty and Prospero. So with that scene where where Stone's wearing that flame suit essentially says goodbye to Cassandra and Jones in case anything goes wrong. Yeah. So that's a very, you know, meaningful moment there, right? Very powerful moment. Yeah. Because, you know, they each, kind of admit that they they had to try it and you know you were kind of saying this earlier they had to try it on his or her own and and, you know it's a great scene she hugs stone Uh, obviously they've come a long way stone and jones of course they're not they're not going to hug it out they do the knuckle knuckle bump but they use the science of magic to break up the category five storm and you know everything's moving in, in, in certainly in the right direction so we get to the end of the episode and, and I love, I mean, Flynn, he just sums everything up. And I mean, it's a rather long quote, but you know, when you start to try to, it's like, okay, now I've been following along. What the heck is really going on? An immortal magician from Shakespeare's play has teamed up with a supervillain genius that he's pulled from literature to take advantage of the fact that magic has returned to the world to restore his power and accomplish some sort of unknowable and yet terrifying plot for world domination. <laughs> right. <laughs> I just, I mean, it's just so. Yeah, it's great. It's, yeah. it's so Flynn. And as he said, we don't know what he wants to do. Except it's obviously something evil. It is something evil. Um, because he's yeah. not even like a, fun, like, you know, Duloc was at least like a fun bad guy because he was like kind of funny in his evilness. But like Prospero is not funny. Well, and, and, you know, even with Duloc, and I agree with you, even Duloc then going back to the whole, you know, fall of Camelot and then trying to revisit the point at which he was at his most powerful and, uh, you know, okay. And then what he planned to do was was obviously tear down the world and start start new, which is kind of drastic, I guess. Yeah, a little bit. But then Flynn tells her about his plans and she tells him, well, you should save those ideas for the meeting. <laughs> but he says he really doesn't like meetings. She says, well, who does? Yeah, no one well, does, Flynn. Well, no well, one does. And well, well, no one knows that better than an educator. Wayne, no, we do know some people that like meetings. <laughs> <laughs> it's clear. Yeah. Because they're still at the meeting long after we've left. Yeah. Yeah. You know, they they aired this episode followed by episode two, which we'll we'll talk about next time. And you know, the 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 two. I mean, there's a a nice stopping point, yet it smoothly goes and continues the story in episode two. Right. So uh, again, just you know, a really brilliant way to open the season we don't know yet if they're going to do the, the same thing for episode uh, for season three because they've done it with seasons one and two opening with the two two sure. episode yeah. premiere two-parter uh, you know I, I mean just a really really great return for a really great show i mean is, is anything else you want to uh, mention that that we've haven't touched on yet no no i liked it a lot it's great yeah and i just remember when it came on just to like 
you know, just that excitement of watching new librarians again. It was just like, oh man, you know, it's like whenever Doctor, you know, there's there's only a couple series that really get jacked for, you know. It's like the librarians, Doctor Who, maybe Game of Thrones, where it's just like when that first episode is comes up, you're just like, oh man, I can't wait. It's, you know, it's going to be so awesome. And uh, you know, all three of them, they never fail to uh, to please when they with their season openers. Yeah, and you know, I I don't remember how it was that I I don't know if it was talking to you. I I, I just don't remember how I got into the librarians because obviously I I went back, I binge season one. And then watched season two as it aired. So I, I, I just don't remember. You know, maybe it was having watched the movies. Uh, gosh, I wish I could remember, but my gosh, that was a that was a year ago. Yeah, <laughs> it's like another lifetime. Another lifetime. So, <laughs> all right. Well, listen, that's going to do it for us for tonight. Want to thank you for joining us. Love to hear from you with follow ups about any of the pilots that we've previewed way in the past. Uh, the librarians, uh, upcoming Westworld, anything you think we should be watching. Like to encourage you to join the Facebook group if you're already a member. Spread the word. Emails to sci-fi TV rewatch at gmail.com. Voicemails via the speak pipe tab, which you can access through the website. And you might want to start thinking about, uh, you know, what kind of feedback you want to send us. So you can throw your name in the hat as soon as we get this together to give away. Greg Cox's forthcoming novel. It'll be out October 11th, The Librarians and the Lost Lamp, which features the whole crew. Not necessarily together, but they're all in the same book. Hey, and if, you're, uh, if your feedback is especially good, maybe we'll sign the copy for you. There you go. Maybe <laughs> oh, How come, who the hell is David Wayne? Why'd they sign your book? <laughs> uh, well, we can sign Greg Cox. Oh, there you go. Seven letters. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, we'll be back next week with episode two of The Librarians. But until then. All right. So, Dave, I know you're going to stay up a little bit to watch the debate tonight. If you're, if you're too upset when it's time to go to sleep, here's my advice. See, I like my math and logic. They help me sleep at night. They're like a teddy bear. A teddy bear made of isosceles, triangles, and electrons. <laughs>